Good morning, Redeemer. It is good to be again with you, opening God's Word. I bring you uh, greetings from the international ministry that I serve with, Word Partners, and I bring you greetings from Calvary Baptist Church in Elgin, my home church where we worship, uh, led by somebody most of you know pretty well, namely uh, Tony Dopke, and he sends his greetings as well this morning. Uh, But it is good to be here. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles now to Acts chapter 19. Acts 19, we're going to look at a story in verses 11 through 20 of that chapter. Uh, And I love the book of Acts. I was excited when I was asked to preach that it's part of the ongoing series you've had in the book of Acts. Acts is a fascinating, fascinating book. It's unique in the New Testament in terms of being a story, being a narrative. Uh, Of course, the Gospels are a narrative, and their central focus is on Jesus. And Jesus is also present in the um, book of Acts. It's actually the continuing story of what Jesus is doing now in and through his apostles and through his people. And within the larger story of Acts, there are some some really compelling shorter stories. And crazy things happen. Uh, Fascinating things happen. Miraculous things happen. We see miracles in the book of Acts. And it just leads me to ask the question, I think it would lead us to ask the question in our day and age, what exactly is a miracle? Uh, Because I would venture to say that the word miracle has become pretty squishy in our time. You know, somebody might say to you, oh, it was amazing. I went to Walmart at the busiest time, the busiest part of the week, full parking lot, and I just pulled up to the front door and there was a parking spot for me. It was a miracle. You're like, well, I mean, I'm really happy for you, but was it a miracle? Or, Or you turn on Sports Center and you hear about some team had a miraculous win. You know, we even have this in our uh, understanding of certain events in sports, like the miracle on ice, or sorry, Cub fans, the miracle Mets of, was that 69? It was a long time ago. But we use that term and for, for sports, and it's like, was it a miracle, or did just like one team outscore a team that we didn't think it was going to outscore? A miracle, uh, more specifically speaking, and, and biblically speaking, is, is when God, God, God controls the universe, right? And he set up the, the universe to work in certain ways, certain predictable ways, laws of nature we sometimes call it. But there are times when God goes above and beyond and works outside of those regular ways that he works. Here's a good definition of miracle from John Collins, who's an Old Testament professor at Covenant Theological Seminary. He writes, a miracle in the fullest sense, is an event of God's providence, right? God is providential. He's watching over all things. It's an event of God's providence in which the outcome goes beyond what the natural properties of the created things involved could have produced, beyond what what would have naturally sort of been produced otherwise. So what should Christians think about miracles? Should we expect the kind of miracles we see in Acts in our lives today? Well, one well-known pastor is convinced that we should. He writes, if you need a miracle today, you need to know this. Miracles are not just hit or miss. You can tap into a miracle. 
God doesn't just decide to do a miracle and sometimes not to. No, he is always ready to do a miracle in your life. Now, my guess is most people in this room today aren't, don't buy into that, that you can just sort of dial up a miracle anytime you want it. However, I don't think any of us want to say that God doesn't do miracles anymore. He is sovereign. He is powerful. He is supernatural. So what should believers today think about miracles? What should we expect regarding miracles? And if we do expect them, what kind should we be looking for? I think that the story that we're going to look at today in Acts chapter 19 is going to help us with that question and help us apply it in our lives. So let me pray as we go to the reading and the preaching and the hearing of God's word. Pray with me, please. Blessed Lord, you have caused all scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may, in such a way, hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're here in Acts chapter 19, and we're going to jump in at verse 11, but let's get an understanding of where we are in the larger story. And where we are uh, in the larger story is we're in Paul's uh, third missionary journey. Remember, he took three of these journeys that we call missionary journeys, and the third one begins uh, late in chapter 18 at about 18 verse 23. And Paul is now in the city of Ephesus. And much of what happens and much of what is written about in the, uh, with the third missionary journey that Luke, the writer here, writes about happens in Ephesus or with the elders of Ephesus. It's really the focal point of this third missionary journey. And rightly so. Ephesus, as uh, Jimmy pointed out in last week's sermon, is, was a leading city in the area. It was the capital of a province of the Roman Empire known as Asia. So don't think the whole continent of Asia that we think of, but think of a, a smaller part of the Roman Empire in his, what is now modern-day Turkey. And this was an important um, leading city, the capital of Asia. And as we pick up the story here, Paul is in Ephesus and he is dialed in. He's going to end up spending just about three years there. Again, the longest span he spent in any of these uh, places where he planted and cultivated churches. And when we pick up the story here, uh, Paul, not surprisingly, has once again been kicked out of the synagogue Uh, But not to worry, he's now preaching in a public hall. And you see that uh, in verse, look at verse 9 of chapter 19. He's in the, the hall of Tyrannus and he's reasoning daily. He's having a daily preaching and teaching ministry. And then it says in verse 10, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now, when I read that, I say, wow, that's incredible. Tell me more. Okay, Luke's going to tell us more. Let's pick up the narrative in verse 11 of Acts chapter 19. 
And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. Then some itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. The seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered them, all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their evil their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and they found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is God's holy word. We thank him for it today. Folks, I think that is a fascinating story. I think that is a strange little story. I think that's a funny story. Now, we all have to admit that when we, when we heard the part about the one guy with the evil spirit overpowering the seven guys so that they run from the house bloody and naked, I think we all saw in our mind's eye something that we can't unsee. I mean, that's just downright funny, isn't it? But, but what is this story all about? What is the, what is the, the theme or what's, what's running through it? Just take a look at, at some of the words or some of the concepts in it again. It begins with the explanation of, of miracles, extraordinary miracles. There's mastering going on. There's overpowering. There's, there's fear and being awestruck. And there is prevailing mightily. Folks, this is a story about power. It's a story about power. And I want us to look at it this morning from the standpoint of power. And three, three movements in that, three points this morning surrounding power. First, what is the source of this power? Start with the source of this power. Where did it come from? Uh, what kind of power is it? And then secondly, the significance of this power. What should we be impressed by with this power? The significance of this power. And then finally, the destiny of this power. The destiny of this power. Where is this power going? And does it have anything to do with us in this room here this morning? So let's begin with the source of this power. Look at how Luke describes the manifestation of this incredible power in verse 11. He calls it, he says it, it these are extraordinary miracles. Doesn't it sound kind of redundant? A miracle is something extraordinary. If you're hooked on phonics, extra ordinary already. 
but he's saying this, this was, these were some extraordinary, extraordinary stuff. Or these were extraordinary works of power, extraordinary mighty works. And then in verse 12, he goes on to tell us some of these extraordinary works of power. That, that Paul was merely touching the, uh, a handkerchief, literally a do-rag, or um, an apron, some cloth, and then that would be carried away to someone who was sick and the disease would, li- would leave them. Or that was carried away to somebody who was being possessed by an evil spirit and the spirit would be cast out. I mean, that is extraordinary. Paul was, as it were, doing miracles via Zoom. He didn't even have to be there. And it says that, the, that this was being done by the hands of Paul, but the writer here is clear that he is just the agent. He's just the, the conduit of the power, right? He begins in verse 11 saying, and God was doing extraordinary miracles. And that becomes overwhelmingly clear when these uh, seven preachers' kids, these seven guys related to supposedly the Jewish high priests get involved, these sons of Sceva, it says that they were itinerant Jewish exorcists. So they were exorcists, meaning they somehow did or supposedly were able to cast demons out of people who were possessed by an evil spirit. They were Jewish, uh, supposedly related to the Jewish high priest, and they were itinerant. They traveled around and did this. So I don't know if they just happened to be in town, perhaps at the wrong place at the right time. But this scene is amazing. They try to take uh, the name of Jesus and speak it to a guy who is possessed by an evil spirit to try to exercise, to cast that demon out. They're sort of grabbing onto this power and trying to use it. Not unlike Simon the sorcerer in, back in chapter 8 in the giving of the, of the Holy Spirit, trying to, trying to grab onto that power. And in this amazing scene, the man with the evil spirit turns on them, beats the daylights out of them so that they run from the place bloodied and, to add to their shame, naked. I think there's just, we just need to hit the pause button and, and just realize there are at least a couple of, of brief lessons for us already right here this morning. Lesson number one is that the spirit world is just as real as the physical world. There is a spirit world, friends. Now, that's probably not shocking to this group. You're, you're, you're in a church, you're at a worship service, you obviously believe in something you know, beyond you know, what we can see, feel, taste, and touch. But we live in a world where a lot of people don't. We live in a very materialistic world in terms of everything being defined by material. We live in a, a culture that is very much a closed universe for most people. And so we can forget that there is a real spirit world out there. There are real spirit beings, good spirit beings like, like angels, and there are real evil spirit beings like, like demons. We need to remember that. And then secondly, we need to remember that we shouldn't mess around with it. We shouldn't play around with the spirit world. That it's, it's not a game. It is, it is beyond us. Now, I believe that you are, if you are a follower of Jesus indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you cannot be possessed by an evil spirit. But I also believe that if any of us start to mess around with, with this evil realm, what we would call in our day the occult, 
reading the occult, watching it, taking it in in something away, playing some kind of, of game or dabbling in it, that we are messing around with real evil and we ought not to trifle with it. And what is it that these guys were messing around with? What is it that they were trifling with? Well, it's interesting in verse 15, the the Spirit tells them what exactly they were messing with here. Uh, I I can't help but read this part where it says, the Spirit, who kind of ends up being one of the main characters in this little story, these guys, this is comical, these guys are trying to cast him out, but then he, using the name of Jesus, and he replies to them, Jesus I know, more about that later, Paul I recognize as one of his apostles, but who are you? I have to confess, when I, when I read that, I couldn't help but think about uh, that scene in the movie Elf where, where Buddy realizes that the department store Santa is not the real Santa and he's so angry, he's like, well, who the heck are you? I hear that voice. I, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? I don't know your name. I know Jesus' name, I know Paul's name, but what is your name? And that's, that that's is what they were trifling with because the power was in the name and they saw that it was in the name, these sons of Sceva, but it wasn't in the name in the way that they thought. That's the source of power, but not the way they thought. They thought that they could use just the uttering of the name of the Lord Jesus as a, as a cipher or a magic spell, or an incantation. Apparently they went to the the Hogwarts school of wizardry. Just say the incantation and it'll happen. But we need to to remember that one's name in Scripture is nearly identical to their person and their character. These guys clearly had no relationship to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. They wanted the benefits that they could get from Jesus, but they wanted to keep the relationship professional. I'm going to say that again because some of us in this room need to hear it. They wanted the benefits. They wanted what they could get from Jesus without really having a relationship to him. And they discovered rather painfully that the source of this amazing power was not just the uttering of Jesus himself, but was not just the uttering of Jesus' name, but it was Jesus himself. Everything that his name represents, who he is, that's where the power is. This is the power of Jesus' kingdom coming. And that is the story of Acts, that ever since the the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost at the beginning of the book, Jesus' kingdom is coming and it's having its effect in the then known world. It's interesting that right before this story, in the beginning of chapter 19 of Acts, verses 1 through 7, when, when these guys receive the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is poured out and they begin speaking in tongues. It's almost like a mini Pentecost happening there, reminding us of the theme of Acts and what has gone on before them, before this event. Remember that Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke, the writer of Acts, When he begins writing Acts, again to the recipient of the book, this guy named Theophilus, he says that when he wrote Luke, that was the story of all that Jesus began to do. 
The implication is now that we're in Acts, this is the story of what Jesus continues to do by his Holy Spirit, through his apostles, and through his church. And we even see echoes of Jesus in Paul here. Uh, like Jesus, Paul here had, was given the power over disease and devils. Even this touching of the cloth is reminiscent of a story Luke told in the gospel of the woman who just came up and touched Jesus' cloak and was healed. And like Jesus, Paul, or yes, like Jesus, Paul here is facing opposition from people that have some connection or, with the Jewish high priest. In other words, the story is that Jesus is just getting started and what he's accomplishing is continuing. His gospel is going to the ends of the earth in his power. And so the source of the power is from God through the name that is the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what is the significance of this power? What should we be impressed by when we see this power? We begin to see the significance of this power, of Jesus' power, of the power in his name in verse 17. In verse 17, we, re we read that what happened here, this amazing event, uh, it became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. Similar to what was stated uh, just a few verses above that in verse 10, that Paul was, had this preaching ministry daily in the hall of Tyrannus, speaking the word of God, and that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And then here we're told that this event, uh, this, this powerful event became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And it says that fear fell upon them. Fear fell upon them. Reverence, a legitimate fear, the fear of God, the fear that one should have in the presence of divinity. And it says the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Or the name of the Lord Jesus was, was magnified. What does it mean to extol or to magnify the name of Jesus? Does it mean to sing, to sing praise to him? Or, or to sing his praises as we just did. It does. But it means more than that. It means to live to praise him. That is to live our lives in such a way as to demonstrate that, that he is our highest love. He, as we sang, is Lord and King of all. It's to live our lives in such a way that it's clear that we treasure him above all else. That was the response of, these, of some of the believers in verse 18. Notice that there's a little, little revival that happens here. Uh, what happens uh, in verse 18, notice it doesn't happen with people uh, who weren't believers. This is happening among those who had already trusted Christ through Paul's ministry there in Ephesus. And having become aware of the great power and praiseworthiness of Jesus, these believers become aware of their ongoing sin in their lives. And so they begin to confess their, their evil practices. And they begin to um, confess that, they're, they're, that they practiced magic arts. Now, this is not magic like a card trick, right? Pulling a rabbit out of the hat. Right? This, this is dark magic. This is the occult. 
here. And apparently that was something that was rather common in Ephesus. When it talks about burning these, these books, uh, there were books or scrolls or whatever during that time that archaeologists have found that are called uh, Ephesian letters. And they're just long lists of different incantations that, hey, you want an incantation for this? They'd sell them to one another. And so they gather up these, the, these books and they burn them. And so now the transformation in their hearts is registering in their hands. They're making a complete break with sin. And notice it, it was public. It was there in the sight of all. Now we're kind of down on book burning. <laughs> Censorship always comes up <laughs> if you talk about book burning. This is not that kind of a book burning. What, what you'd have to imagine this would be like is if, if a bunch of people got convicted about pornography in their life and they gathered all of their porn materials and piled it high and threw gasoline on it and torched it. That's more what this was. This was saying we're making a clean break with sin. We're making a clean break with evil in our lives. And a costly break. 50,000 pieces of silver doesn't register with me, so I had to look that up. And the re source that I looked it up and said it was roughly $6 million worth of stuff. And that was written a few years ago, so I just figured we've had some serious inflation. So let's say $10 million that these books were valued at. A clean break with sin. So then what then here was the most significant display of power in this story? Was it the extraordinary miracles like healing diseases and casting out evil spirits from long distance? Was it one man with an evil spirit overpowering seven men? Or was it that men and women recognized their sin, repented of it, and treasured Christ more deeply? Friends, that is the great miracle in this story. That is the great display of power that we should be impressed with. And the author really leaves us no doubt that that's where our eyes should be going here. Because he summarizes what's been going on in verse 20. When he says, So the word, or in this way, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And in the original, that, that mightily is front-loaded in the sentence here. And so in this way, mightily, the word of the Lord continued to increase, it continued to grow, and it prevailed, it had dominion. See, this is kingdom kind of language. Christ's kingdom is, is picking up territory. It's gaining momentum as the gospel goes out and transforms people's lives. But what about this mention of the word of the Lord here? Uh, where did that come from? Well, all this, as we've observed already, all that's happening in Ephesus has been happening in the context of God's word. Again, Paul is reasoning daily. He's preaching and teaching daily the gospel from God's word. I'm a little bit envious. Uh, my, my role with word partners is, is a lot of preaching and teaching and training, but I don't ever get to do it daily. Wow. 
And in the context of that, these folks have been hearing him proclaim the word of God. And so uh, when the Christians in this story who've been hearing Paul proclaim the word of Christ for two or three years now saw that you don't trifle, when they saw that you don't trifle with the name of Jesus, they stopped trifling with the word of Jesus. Instead, they worshiped Jesus And his word had its intended effect of overpowering the sin in their lives. So the source of this power is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, his person from which his word flows, and the significance of Jesus' power here is its ability to overcome man's sin so that he is magnified. Friends, that's what this story is really all about. That's that's what we should take away this morning, that when Jesus' word overpowers our sin, he is magnified. When Jesus works in our life so that his word overpowers our sin, he is magnified. And we could also say we are sanctified. We become more and more holy. We become more and more like Christ. But how do we know that Jesus' word has the power to overcome our sin? Turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 13, reads, And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. And God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over over them in him. How did God do this? Where did God do this? He did this at the cross of Christ. Notice how Paul describes that here, that that when Jesus died on that cross, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities. These are these, these evil spirit beings, these unseen beings in the universe. He disarmed them, he put them to open shame, and he triumphed over them. Because a miracle had to happen. Because there's no way that any of us could ever be reconciled to God on our own. There's no way that we could do what it takes to restore the relationship that our sin has broken with a holy God. Only a miracle, only a true supernatural miracle could do that. And that happened at the cross of Christ that Jesus took on our sin and he bore it in his body, fully paying for the penalty of it so that all who believe in him could have eternal life. Paul puts it there again in in verse 13 that we just read in Colossians 2. We We were dead. Dead people don't come to life apart from a miracle, but God made us alive in Christ and he forgave our trespass. How did Jesus do that? There's a sense in which he did it with his word. 
one word that he spoke at the cross. It's three words in our language, but it was one word in his. It is finished. Finished. The record of sin, the debt of sin has been paid for. And then the miracle of the resurrection, God raises Jesus to new life. And then the miracle of opening our hearts to the gospel. And Paul says, describes that. He describes it in 2 Corinthians as if it's like creation, where God said, let there be light. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, creation, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. A new miracle of recreation, of regeneration, If you are a Christian today, this is the power that made you alive in Christ. This is the power that overcame your sin and now resides in you through the Holy Spirit. And if you are not a Christian today, this is the power that can overcome your sin. You need to know that you'll never get over it yourself. You need to know that you'll never do anything. You'll never do enough to to gain a right standing with God. And you don't have to because it's already been done in Jesus. And God can do that miracle of regenerating your heart to trust him so that you'll turn from your sin, trust in him for his righteousness, know forgiveness and eternal life. Turn to him today. When you've experienced that kind of power, the gracious power of the Lord Jesus defeating your sin, making you clean, giving you eternal life, you can't help but magnify his name. You can't help but sing his praise. You can't help but treasure him above all else. That brings us to our final point this morning. The destiny of this power. Where where is this power going in the long run? Do you remember again why Luke tells us uh, this story? In fact, why he wrote the whole uh, book? If you go back to the Gospel of Luke, volume 1, that precedes the book of Acts, at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, Luke is addressing the recipient of these writings, a guy named Theophilus, And he's letting him know why he wrote this for Theophilus. Theophilus, I'm writing this to you that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. That you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. I think that's why this story is here for us today as well. It can give us certainty. It can give us confidence. So how does this story give us confidence? Briefly, three ways that this story gives us confidence as Jesus' disciples. First, it gives us confidence in Jesus' superior, unstoppable power. Gives us confidence in Jesus' superior power. Friends, we do not live in a a dualistic universe, all right? We don't live in one of the Star Wars episodes where there's, there's the force, and it could be the good force, it could be the bad force, depending on who's, who's wielding the force, but they're kind of equal. They're pretty much equal powers, and sometimes one's winning. No, no. Or we don't live in, this is a little more helpful for me, a Bugs Bunny cartoon, 
I loved Bugs Bunny as a kid. Still like Bugs Bunny. You know, you remember Bugs Bunny's trying to make a decision, trying to figure out if he should do it, if he shouldn't, and then pop. Little angel pops up on his shoulder. And in this sweet, meek little voice says, oh, you should do this or you shouldn't do that or whatever. And then pop. Little devil pops up on this shoulder, right? And in a mean voice says, yeah, go get him. We don't live in that kind of a universe. We live in a universe where Jesus has demonstrated his superior, unstoppable power at the cross and over the grave. Again, second, or Colossians says that he disarmed the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. He put them to open shame and he triumphed over them. I love how John puts this in his first letter when he writes, Little children... You who are from God have overcome them. And he who is in you, you know this one, he who is in you or he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I love the old hymn before the throne of God. The third verse begins, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. It's finished. He is the superior power. And that leads us to the second uh, confidence that we can have. We can have confidence. We can have hope for change. We all deal with indwelling sin. Like if I asked, if I said, hey, raise your hand if you struggle with sin, we would all have to put our hands up, right? So let's do that. Raise your hand if you still struggle with sin. 100%. Every one of us. And sometimes, I know in my life, there have been sins that I have wondered, will I ever get over this? Will I ever get past this? Will I always be dealing with this? This passage gives us hope for change, that God wants to change us. I love Romans 6. This is, the, this is the great passage in our Bibles about the reality of power over sin. If you're struggling with, with we're all struggling with sin. We just said that. So I'll just say we all need to go back to Romans chapter 6 again and again. But listen again to just a couple of lines from Romans chapter 6 beginning at verse 5. For we who have been united with him, that's with Jesus, we have been united with him in a death like his, if we have, we shall, I love this word, we shall certainly, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, it's dead and buried, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we should no longer be slaves to sin. I think this text gives us hope in the struggle against sin. That Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. His power is superior. It's interesting that Paul, near the end of the letter, the letter to the Ephesians that we have in our Bibles that he wrote to this same group, uh, there's that passage that talks about putting on the full armor of God. 
And while that has relevance for sort of this idea of, of, of spirit warfare on one level, I think the spiritual warfare that it's most practical for, the putting on of the full armor of God, is this daily struggle we have with sin. The helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel. And isn't it interesting how Paul sets that up in Ephesians? He says, For we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers in this present darkness. He's writing to the folks who saw this event. The the, the spirit, the guys getting bloodied and running, wrestling with that guy. (laughs) And he says, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We can have confidence. We can have hope for change. And finally, we can have confidence in the gospel. We can have confidence in the advance of the gospel. We can have confidence in our sharing of the gospel with others. You know, Luke wrote Acts in such a way that you get to the end of the book of Acts and you realize the story is not over yet. God intends for his word to continue to increase and prevail. Again, so the word of the Lord mightily prevailed. It mightily increased. And the intent is that that would continue until Christ returns. And part of the power of of the gospel is the power of a changed life. And Peter writes about this in his epistle. He urges Christians to be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is within you. Why would they ask? What would they see? Wouldn't it be that your life is a public display of gospel transformation? Not that you're perfect, but that God is changing you. And when they ask about that, you can talk about the superior power of the Lord Jesus. You can speak the word of Christ through the gospel. So, what should we think about miracles? Should we expect them? Friends, this story tells us that believers should expect to see miracles in their lives. Specifically, we should expect to see Jesus' word miraculously overpowering our sin so that his name is magnified. May it be so. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you this morning as the one who by laying down your life triumphed over evil. And Father, we praise you for raising Jesus from the dead, demonstrating that miraculous power. And Jesus, we know that you have given us your Holy Spirit, that that power now resides within us. And so we pray that you'd help us. We pray that you would help us as we look to your word day in and day out, that you would mold us and you would shape us more like Jesus and that he would be magnified as you do that. We pray this in his name. Amen.